0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This is The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: Let's see. We have Joe McFarland, who's the news director of News Talk 770 in Calgary, our great chorus radio station in Calgary joining us. Hi, Joe. Good day, Roy. Long day for you yesterday.
2: Uh, You know what? It It was certainly an interesting one. I think that there was not really a whole lot of surprise in the grand scheme of things. I mean, There's been so much talk about getting the two parties together. It was just a matter of whether kind of the extreme left when it comes to the the PC brand and the extreme right on the Wild Rose brand could see past their differences. Because you have to remember, these are two parties that uh, were married at one point under the the PC banner, and then uh, a, a certain segment of it that felt that the party had swayed a little bit too far to the left Uh, left and and became the Wild Rose Party. So this is kind of a a marriage that was a divorce and now is back to being remarried again. And it'll be interesting to see how all the policy decisions and that shake out uh, over the next few weeks. Kind
0: of a replay of the uh, Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada on the federal level a few years ago.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you look at the, the failed attempt even a, a few years, a couple of years ago when uh, Jim Prentice took over the leadership of the, the PC party and, uh, and now a radio host for, for New Talk 770, Danielle Smith, uh, jump ship from the Wild Rose, thinking that was going to be the way to, to kind of unite the conservative movement in Alberta. And that didn't go according to plan, obviously. And, and now they've kind of uh, done it formally. And, and now there's a lot of A lot of things that still need to work themselves out, and and not the least of which being uh, who the new leader is going to be. uh, Who's going to put their name in the hat? Is it going? Brian Jean's already said he's going to. Uh, Jason Kenny's been kind of hit and miss. It's hard to tell whether or not he wants to run or not because the other wild card in it happens to be Derek Fildebrandt. And they, I I know Derek and and Jason were fairly well known to each other. They were good friends. Uh, You wonder if they'd run against each other or not. And then there's another guy by the name of Doug Schweitzer, who's also uh, formally said he's going to run for the leadership. So a few wild cards there, and, and that leadership is going to be sort of what determines what the not just the fiscal uh, uh, things are going to be, or fiscal responsibilities, that kind of thing, but also the social issues and how they're going to sort themselves out.
0: So, uh, Joey, you're saying then there's some doubt as to whether or not Jason Kenney's going to run for the leadership of the new party?
2: I don't think there is, to be honest. No, what else but would he do? There's always that. There's always that question. It's the wonder in in some circles is whether he wanted to be the guy to um, just manufacture this deal, you know, be the brain, the job, be the guy who made it, and then yeah, yeah, and then you know, if he were to back, let's say he does go and back Derek Fildebrandt, for example, or Doug Schweitzer, or yeah. whatever the case may be, then he's they've got some solidarity there as well, and. Um, it's been no secret, I think, that there's been a little bit of a rift within the Wild Rose between uh, the leader, Brian Jean, and, and the second-in-command, so to speak, with uh, Derek Bill. So what's that about, Joe? It, it's been kind of all over the map, and it hasn't really been said out loud as to what it is. I, there's a, a few that kind of already started to question just how conservative Brian Jean is in the grand scheme of things. Um, there's also the the... There's been a, a little bit of discontent in certain ridings, and there was a, an issue. I want to say about a year or so ago, uh, sort of the Lacklabish area, St. Paul, uh, kind of just north of Lloydminster, just a little bit north uh, northeast of Edmonton. Um, that there was there were some questions as to whether they wanted to have a, uh, a leadership vote again, and it, it kind of got a little bit. It took the headlines over in this province for. For a week or so, because was there a level of discontent with the Brian Jean leadership? Was he being upfront enough? That kind of thing. So it's hard to tell whether some of those ghosts will come back. So is this not. a is, a, is this a comes through? But
0: Joe, is this a testosterone fight?
2: It's a great question. It'll be and whether or not that testosterone fight is now over and they can get back to it. Because I know yesterday um, there was a few questions raised about whether Phil DeBron was going to back Gene um, and Gene basically said, listen, we're going to be, uh, I'm focusing on the positive. If everybody yeah. else wants to focus on the negative, that's fine. And so you're, you're already seeing some lines being drawn in the sand and where they're going to stand in terms of who they're standing behind. Um, the real real proof in the pudding is going to be when all these leadership contestants do stake their claim. Who? What kinds of policies are they going to back? What kinds of issues are they going to be standing behind and, and that to kind of attract some of those who were sort of just right of center. So they have so about three the people months. The people they want to uh, appease to.
0: Yeah, Joe, they have about three months to, to work all of this out, right? Yeah. That's when yeah. the leadership vote is going to be, October the 28th?
2: Yep. Yeah. And and begs another interesting question. I mean, there's been a, a few rumblings, and I don't know if there's, there's any appetite within the governing NDP right now, but Some people are saying, well, I wonder if there's going to be a snap election called." I don't think that there's an appetite for it, just based on the fact that the economy is still not quite where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Um, We all saw what happened when Jim Prentice called an election a a year early. I don't think there's an appetite in Alberta to go and spend a a few more million dollars to decide. But at the same time, as as the Wild Rose and PCs try to figure out who's sort of king of the castle inside the new UCP, uh, the question becomes: can the, can the NDP sneak by and call a snap election mm-hmm. while those two parties are still trying to hammer out their own issues?
0: Joe, if you have all of these sidebar things going on, you know you mm-hmm. have the Filderbrand gene issue. You don't know where officially where Jason okay. Kenny stands. Where do the Social uh, Democrats, if you will—I'm uh, mm-hmm. not using the right term—but the Social Conservatives um, within the party stand? Where do the more conservative conservatives of the party stand? Question then for some people watching from the outside is going to be, is this really a united Conservative Party or is it a marriage of convenience put together in order to defeat the NDP?
2: Well, um, and that's going to be, I think, something that's going to play itself out, and certainly something that I think the NDP is really going to hammer hammer home over the next little while in all of their. Uh, I know Sarah Hoffman was uh, talking last night I didn't catch what she exactly said in terms of her reaction to this I, again I don't think anybody was really surprised by the outcome yeah. of last night maybe I think there's a little bit of surprise in terms of the numbers like 95% was sort of an overwhelming majority It's a big number. Yeah it really is and and I but there's been some talk about you know how many people voted and and then the sidebar to that is if you were a member of both if you were a voting member of both parties did you get two votes did you get one vote you know, so there's, there's a few little sidebar issues on that front, too. The, the overwhelming majority, though, have said we need these two parties to work together in some way, shape, or form. And so it's really going to amount to who's willing to budge on certain issues, who's willing to bend a little bit to allow themselves to be looking like the Big Ten party that they say they can be. Yeah. If they can't get that far, then we're going to see exactly what happened when the wild rose are first formed, is that you're going to see some splinter cells for sure. You're going to see a few um, people that are going to be discontent with the way with too much bending, either from the really social liberal side of the PCs or the real fiscal conservative side of the wild rose. Those two factions will probably have to bust off at some point. Um, but by the same token, I think there's there there needs to be that give and take in order to make this work.
0: Okay, so now the question is. Are Albertans ready to wave goodbye to the NDP, or does the influx of new Alberta residents perhaps not make that as likely as we and the rest of Canada might expect?
2: Well, and, and there's the other sidebar, and all, as you said, there's a lot of sidebars, mm-hmm. and, and it, there really is. And, and you look at even the, demo, uh, the demographic differences between uh, in uh, that exist within Alberta. You have city folk who I don't know how many people would be interested in Edmonton to vote Conservative. Uh, to be frank, because they've always, even federally, they've voted in NDP MPs. Um, They were very, the NDP is still polling very strong in Edmonton, despite, you know, what some people would think outside of of, uh, uh, Alberta. In Calgary, it's sort of a hit and miss proposition in a sense. You've got people who see the, the empty buildings in downtown Calgary and go, we need to change that. But you've also got a few people that are still pretty happy. Their quality of life is unchanged. And then out in the out in the, the sticks, out in rural Alberta, you don't have a ton of people that voted NDP to begin with. So do, does the UCP stand to gain anything out of it from the rural Alberta standpoint? I don't think so. And so there's, and as you mentioned, in Calgary, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag because you have so many transplants, whether they're from Ontario or BC or Saskatchewan. Certainly some of these get, people have seen what the NDP governments have done in their other provinces, but yeah. it's not quite the same Style of NDP that you do see in other parts of the country. Well, I tell you, in it's the province, they know they have to lean a little bit further right than their friends across the country.
0: Joe, in Ontario, you say NDP, and people's hairs, uh, hair on the back of their neck, still stands straight up, mm-hmm. just in memory, just a reflex memory of Bob Ray. It's the uh, it's the DNA fight or flight reflex.
2: Absolutely, and in uh, Saskatchewan, I think, is the same thing, right? Like you put up with like, yeah. how many years of that, and, and that's why Brad Wall does extremely well, and yeah. I think. That might be something to look at in terms of what the, what the new UCP stands for. is. Okay. If they can kind of capture that same demographic that Brad Wall has in Saskatchewan, then maybe there's going to be a, a chance. But if they see, are seen as a party that continually has squabbles on the inside and can't seem to get their, their head straight on some of the, the bigger social issues that have kind of flagged the Wild Rose for, for the last number of years, uh, it's going to be a bit of an uphill battle, I think.
0: Joe, thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you. Great analysis oh, of what's going on in your province. Always a pleasure. Joe always McFarland pleasure, is the yeah. Thank you so much. Joe is the uh, news director at uh, QR when well, it used to be QR seventy seven News Talk seven seventy in uh, Calgary, our chorus radio station. They're also the assistant program director.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.
0: My guest is Brian Jean, Wildrose leader, and. Uh, the last time I spoke with you, Brian, it was after the uh, that horrid wildfire in your in your city of Fort McMurray. Before we talk about anything else, good to have you on the show. And how are things in your in your community today?
3: Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Our community is not obviously uh, fully recovered. It's, we've got about 350 to 450 homes that are in some stage of construction, and more than 2,000 were destroyed. So it will take some time to rebuild, and any help that we can receive from our governments instead of standing in the way would be much appreciated. But as always, uh, and as you know, oftentimes government uh, stands in the way more than giving a helping hand, and that's something we're hoping to change here in Alberta.
0: All right, well, we're still very concerned across this country about the well-being of the people of Fort McMurray. And of course, the well-being of the people that. in the uh, in the national parks areas uh, near Banff and and in British Columbia with the wildfires that are ongoing. Let me ask you about uh, yeah. what what happened uh, last night. The vote ninety five percent ninety five percent plus. That's a tremendous endorsement in percentages in numbers. Did you expect that level of support?
3: Well, first of all, Roy, thank you to all your listeners and all all the people in Canada that helped the people in Fort McMurray and held their hands out and supported us. I do really appreciate that from the bottom of my heart, from all the people in Northern Alberta, um, to everyone in Canada that assisted us. Last night was monumental. It was a moment in history for certain here in Alberta when the two Conservative parties received such a large mandate from the membership. That clearly tells you where Alberta has gone in the last two years under the NDP and where Albertans want us to go and members. We sold 10,000 memberships in just three days more than 24,000 in just a few months. And uh, the response was amazing and continues to be amazing by ordinary, everyday, hard-working Albertans.
0: How does the uh, United Conservative Party of Alberta change the political representation for conservatives in the province of Alberta? I understand that the idea is to form one party and have a better chance of defeating the uh, the New Democrats of Rachel Notley. But does this one party change the representation reality for conservative voters who are on a fairly wide spectrum on social issues and, and political issues? Does it change the political representation in the in the province?
3: I think what it does is it enables and empowers everyday Albertans to be involved in the political process. As unique as our party is from other parties, it gives tremendous Influence to the membership. For instance, in this case, it took 75% of the members to decide to unite in order to have it passed. That's the kind of authority we have under the new party as well. So the members are really in charge, and I think that's going to give a tremendous amount of, of accountability to the people for their government and expectation for the government to remain transparent and continue to listen and consult with Albertans. And it's a little different than other political parties. Uh, I do think it's an amazing opportunity for Albertans to have a better voice in our government. And I do believe, ultimately, based upon living here my entire life uh, and being from Fort McMurray, that most Albertans do have a fiscal conservative uh, hope for their government. And that means that at some time in the future, hopefully, the government will turn the corner and and turn back the other way. And that's the expectation of Albertans. And that would be a a government under this new United Conservative Party.
0: (laughs) let me uh, let me read you an email that I received, and it, it ties into a, a call from this, the same person who wrote the the email. She was a volunteer, and she had some uh, she had some concerns about how things went. She uh, writes, Roy, we eventually got her pins. We didn't have pin numbers uh, or pins initially, but uh, unable to vote to vote in person would have required a drive of about an hour and a half each way. Not going to happen, particularly since we thought we were going to be able to vote online. Could not vote online because the computer system did not allow voting if you got your membership on or after July the 8th, even though a legitimate member with a pin could not vote via the meeting uh, press 9 option, because I guess we were identified as being able to vote via the Internet. The phone-in option was tried by being 249th in the queue was an impossible position. My cousin waited on the phone for 45 minutes and then hung up because she had to go to work. In other words, the voting process was a disaster. As a systems analyst, I was appalled. Does no one believe in testing? But all that said, we were frustrated and angry because we were worried that the 75% approval for unity would be hard to obtain. In other words, all three of us wanted the result to uh, be obtained. Can hardly wait for 2019. There have been some concerns, some expressions of, uh, of frustration about how things went yesterday. What do you say to that?
3: Well, first of all, there's no system that's perfect, but this was done by a third party uh, independent uh, that obviously is a professional at it, and they had a system in place, and I do think that it was tremendously successful. There's always going to be, um, you know, those those situations that happen in any type of uh, vote or movement this large. There was 24,000 votes, and in, in terms of our membership, that's about 58% of our members that voted um that's a, an amazing turnout that's more than turned out in the last provincial election um and although as some people said there they for whatever reason couldn't vote or weren't didn't have a membership and oftentimes there's misunderstanding about that we are always working to make our system better and with the 95 percent approval rating we've obviously received a clear mandate notwithstanding what uh may have seemed like some people not being able to vote and certainly, we're going to address those concerns. And every single time we have this type of vote, we've got to get better. I can certainly tell you this from other political parties that I've been involved with in the past, where they have annual general meetings that people go to, and there's only six or seven hundred or even a thousand people that decide on policy and constitutional changes. In this particular case, more than 50% of our membership came out. And often in political parties, less than 10% decide on many, many mm-hmm. aspects of what a political party does. So I'm not ashamed at all. I'm very proud of what we've done and what we've accomplished and how we've unified conservatives in this province. I'm absolutely proud of that.
0: Well, the reason I ask the question is that you're going to be under the microscope from the, from day one about what you do as, uh, with the new party and what you would do as a potential uh, leader of the party or a candidate for the leadership, and by extension a candidate for the premiership of the province of Alberta. What is it that Brian Jean brings to... The political arena brings to the unified conservative movement in Alberta that makes you the right person to be the leader of this new party, and by again by extension, what makes you the right person to replace um, uh, Rachel Notley—I forgot her name for a second—as as as, as premier of Alberta.
3: Well, I do have extensive experience. I've been in Alberta more than fifty years. I'm from Fort McMurray. I understand the oil and gas industry. I've been, you know, a, a parliamentarian for 10 years in Ottawa as an MP and two years as leader of the opposition here in uh, Alberta. But more importantly, I was a businessman. I've owned and operated 15 successful businesses in Western Canada, was a litigator in the courts in Alberta for 10 years up in Fort McMurray and been a lawyer for 25 years. Just an extensive and wide variety of of background that gives me, I think, an authenticity to the job that is um, unique but also very helpful in that we know There's going to have to be some tough decisions, some decisions uh, made relating to significant debt this this government has incurred. This NDP government by 2020 will have incurred $90 billion in debt, which is going to cost uh, Albertans at this low interest rate about $3 billion a year just to maintain the interest payments. Uh, And that's about $2,500 a family for us here in Alberta, that's a lot of money that's coming out of people's pockets that they had last year that they're not going to have in two years. You throw the carbon tax that Trudeau and Notley have put on Albertans, that's another $2,500. That's $5,000 that comes out of every single family's pockets that they had two years ago that they're not going to have next year. I can't think of anything more important than unifying Albertans and Conservatives to get these guys out of office as quickly as possible so we can turn around and start maintaining proper fiscal... balance, uh, getting our house in order as far as making sure we're spending no more money than we're bringing in in revenues and making sure our public service gives us a great return on investment. Uh, These are things that are very important to Albertans. Real people, real issues, really important. All
0: right. I just have a couple of more quick questions for you. and I'm not going to come back uh, and and challenge you on anything today because I just want to hear your thoughts on the the morning after the forming of the, or at least the uh, uh, philosophical forming of the party, the actual mechanics of it are still to take place but um carbon tax gone
4: gone
3: <laughs> how Roy? Really, i'll just tell you right now you know france has rejected it
0: yeah australia's has rejected,
3: rejected it, it. Australia has rejected it and the whole world is rejecting it why would we make ourselves not competitive i'm a mm-hmm. common common sense conservative mm-hmm. and we have to be common sense about these types of issues and look at the rest of the world who don't have a carbon tax and are not making their industries non-competitive we have to be competitive
0: uh, what are the issues that would would divide members of this party? What do you have to overcome to make sure that 95% actually stays, close to that number anyway, stays supportive of the party? You've got a wide range of, uh, of opinions and views and philosophical beliefs within the party. What do you do to keep everybody united?
3: Well, I think it's about consultation. About making sure that the members are always in charge and the members have an opportunity every single annual general meeting and any special general meetings and at the local level at the constituency association level to have input and to form policy and to decide on the rules of how the political party is governed and I think if people keep their eye on the ball and what it's all about it's it's about forming government so that we can implement our good policies and ideas and grassroots way of doing things into government and if we can keep that focus and work as a team, I think we're going to accomplish great things here in Alberta.
0: All right. I want to ask you about uh, the feud or if it actually exists between you and Derek Filderbrand, unless you want to talk about it.
3: Um, There's no feud that exists as far as I'm aware. Uh, Derek was uh, and has been a member of our team for some period of time and we've got 22 I consider uh, very strong individuals that are extremely capable and i I'm proud to work with uh, anyone that has good fiscal conservative principles and is always doing it in the best interest of the people that we serve. But this particular issue is bigger than any one of us, and we've got to put aside our own personal egos. We have to think about Albertans and think about what's best for them, and and we know to do that we should work together and be positive working together and think about how we can defeat the NDP um, and not uh, divide our ourselves against each other
0: yeah that's that's critical brian thank you very much for the time i appreciate it i hope we can talk again before the before the actual vote for the leadership
5: absolutely as a
3: person that considers himself a common sense conservative that makes practical decisions i would always find it very practical and common sense to speak to somebody such as you that has listeners that obviously have many family and friends in alberta and have very many conservative ideas and principles
0: that's a good approach thank you brian Thank you, sir. Have a great day. There's You're Brian Jean. Uh, he's running for the leadership of the United Conservative Party. We really appreciate they said good things about our listeners. That's most important to me is people who listen to this program.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.
0: Joining us on the program is um, is Mr. Ed Wood. He's the founder of Driving Under the Influence of Drugs Victim Voices. And uh, you can find them at um, duidvictimvoices.org, duidvictimvoices.org. Ed, thank you very much for the time. The main reason for the existence of your group is the concern that people will drive under the influence of drugs once this law is passed, if not enough time for education of the public takes place. Is that correct?
4: Well, that's close. We have a DUID problem, whether or not marijuana is legalized. We have problems right now in uh, Canada and the United States. Uh, It's not legalized in Canada. It is in parts of the U.S. It turns out that uh, the two greatest causes of DUI are really alcohol and polydrug impairment. Impairment by marijuana alone is actually a distant third but legalization of marijuana can indeed make it more difficult to pass appropriate legislation to protect the public.
0: What's happened in Colorado that it struck your family directly? You lost your son to... Uh, I
4: did, indeed. Uh, I won't spend a and
0: condolences to you and your family. Yeah,
4: thank, thank you very much. That's uh, something that no parent should have to go through, but, no. uh, but, but we've done so. Well, uh, My son was actually not living in, in uh, Colorado. He was living in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia at the time. Uh, He and his wife were living there, were going down to stay in a home owned by her parents' family in Whidbey Island in the state of Washington when they were killed by drivers impaired by marijuana, methamphetamine, and heroin. And I learned during that process that the laws that are in place to deal with DUI caused by alcohol just do not work effectively for DUI drugs. And that was really why I wrote this dissent letter to the prime minister and the premiers on the law C-46 that is before Parliament right now. C-45, as you know, deals with legalizing marijuana, but C-46 just deals with amending the uh, operating while impaired laws in in, uh, Canada. And unfortunately, the uh, draft of C-46 perpetuates the myth that blood levels of Delta-9-THC, which is a psychoactive component of marijuana, correlate with levels of impairment. And that is just not true at all.
0: So they're trying to draw a straight line between alcohol impairment and marijuana impairment.
4: Correct. And it turns out that marijuana is so unlike alcohol, chemically, biologically, and metabolically, that it is truly irrational, Roy, to use a prescribed per se level for marijuana's Delta-9-THC as has been done successfully for
1: alcohol. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Well, I was just saying, Canada's uh, C-46 is supported to address, supposed to address the issue of DI, DUI legislation with graduated penalties, which correspond to the THC levels in the blood, and also uh, provide for criminal prosecution if those THC levels are very high. But that still doesn't meet the requirements that... that you say this legislation or this initiative has to meet
4: the criminal penalties proposed are fine I have no concern with that Uh, I do want to cover in the time remaining a, a couple of key points one is the the folly of using blood THC levels to define the level of impairment of the driver and secondly the danger that this poses to the victims of DUI first of all the folly alcohol leaves the body linearly and at a very slow and predictable rate, and that's not true with THC. In fact, recent studies have shown that within the first 25 minutes after beginning to smoke a joint, the peak levels of THC drop 73 percent. So whatever you find with the forensic laboratory tests of THC, that will tell you absolutely nothing about the level of THC at the time of the incident. Secondly, levels of Alcohol and blood are similar to the levels in the brain. That's just not true with THC. So even if we did know what the level of THC was at the time of a crash, let's say, that would tell us absolutely nothing about the level of THC in the brain.
0: So they haven't done their homework on this piece of legislation.
4: Well, this is not lack of homework. This is a matter of biology. The problem is that THC is fat-soluble. It just does not behave like alcohol at all. And you cannot change science. You can't change chemistry. No, no, I'm it's saying this legislation,
0: 46. the bill C-46, yes, it, it doesn't do what it's supposed
4: to do. It does not at all. In fact, it's worse than that. The, the uh, People need to understand that there is a difference between OWI and OWI per se, and that's baked into the law that uh, you currently have and the one that's being proposed.
0: OWI being?
4: Uh, operating while impaired. The, the uh, Canadian version, DUID, is, uh, is a, a U.S. version. There's OVI, DWI, lots of different terminology. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but the point is, per se, is different than DUI. Just reading from the Canadian law, it says that uh, it is you commit an offense if you operate a conveyance while a person's ability to operate it is impaired to any degree mm-hmm. by alcohol or drug and so forth. A totally separate offense is that if the driver has within two hours after ceasing to operate the conveyance, Blood alcohol concentration equal to or exceeding 80 milligrams. Those are two different uh, different uh, citations.
0: So now what's, the, the, what's, the, what's problem, the answer? What's the fundamental approach that has to change?
4: Well, the fundamental approach is, is to go towards a tandem per se approach. But let me describe what the downside is first before I get to the answer.
0: Could you tell us what per se means?
4: Per se means that you are guilty just by virtue of, 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 of the law itself. If your, your, your drug level shows that you are above 80 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milligrams of blood, you are guilty. Mm-hmm. End of message, okay. per se. Okay. And, and the nice thing about it is it's very, very clear and unambiguous. That's why people like it. With the alcohol. With alcohol. The, the, the problem is that if you are above that level, you're guilty. That's right. Mm-hmm. If you're below that level, you're innocent. And that is a problem with THC, per se, laws. Seventy percent of the stoned drivers currently being tested or THC in their blood, test below the government-recommended 5-nanogram level. 70% of those people. Now, that may be okay to let them off. However, many of those people also are guilty of killing or maiming innocent victims. And to let them off of a criminal conviction is just not just. That is the fundamental problem.
0: How do you change public attitude? It took a long time for the alcohol message to get through and some people obviously still hasn't and the legislation in this country if you kill someone uh, under the influence of alcohol and you're well above the .08 level I mean you could be triple that quadruple that and you may kill three or four people in the most horrific way possible you're still only going to get three or four years in prison and that means you're going to spend about a year and a half not a massive deterrent so what do you do to change the uh, the the outlook. What do you do to to affect positively, appropriately the mindset of people who are going to use this stuff recreationally because by law it's going to be allowed, right. and then persuade them to not get in their vehicle and not drive. I know it has to be backed that, up by legislation, but there has to be. It's a two part um, is. issue, it, isn't it?
4: It's education. It's public pressure. It's. Uh, Right now, you've got people that are saying, I drive better when I'm stoned. That is I've heard that. That is factually incorrect and has been proven time and time again. We need to overcome that to begin with before we can even start to convince people that this is just socially an unacceptable approach. It used to be that we had the approach, to the belief that I, I drove better with a few beers under my belt. Mm-hmm. That no longer is the case. People don't believe that or say that any longer. But it took decades for that to occur. We're going to have decades of deaths before that changes uh, with respect to drugs, I'm afraid.
0: What do you want people to do, Ed? Uh, Politicians and political parties make promises and commitments during campaigns. They're reminded of these promises and commitments while they're in office. The closer they get to the end of their term, the more the pressure they feel to pass the legislation that meets the promise that they 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 provided, and this whole issue about legalizing marijuana has been one that's floated around for so many years in the 1950s. I have a, a recording of Lenny Bruce in the 1950s in Berkeley saying, "Marijuana is going to be legal in 10 years, and you want to know why? Because all the law students are smoking it now." So that was 1950,
4: <laughs> and it took 60 years for it to change. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the the, uh, promises that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau made was that when we do legalize marijuana in Canada, that uh, drivers and the public will be protected. That's just not the case with C-46. Don't just look at the first promise, look at the second promise, too. Per se, standards should not be set to accommodate drug addicts at the expense of the public. It just shouldn't happen.
0: So you agree with uh, Premier Pallister and Premier Wall is one year enough? Uh, is I it ever? Know. Are we ever going to get to the point where you quite appropriately and quite correctly believe we need to be?
4: I don't know if we're ever going to get there, quite frankly. Um, I, I'm, uh, I am not a proponent of marijuana legalization, but as I say, DUID uh, is a separate issue from legalization mm-hmm. for, for many different reasons.
0: All right, and we'll ask our callers to go to duidvictimvoices.org. D U I D victimvoices.org org, and you are associated with a Canadian organization out of Vancouver, are you not?
4: I am indeed. Yeah. And they and support. They, they they support what we've said. Uh, they they uh, I, uh, I I appreciate and and recognize what, what they're doing and trying to uh, uh, move activism against the legalization of marijuana. Uh, that's not really what my issue is. My issue is uh, driving an the influence of drugs.
0: Have you heard back from the? Prime Minister or anyone in Canada's Parliament? I
4: I have from the Prime Minister. He has uh, submitted this to two of his ministers for consideration.
0: All right. I guess we'll hear more about it, and we'll talk again. And thank you so much for the time today.
1: Thanks for your time. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Just reading from an email. I have no quality of life anymore, and I go days, sometimes weeks, without leaving my house at all. I want to be able to see both of my kids get married and start families of their own. I want to see my grandchildren be born and not have them know me as the sick lady who stays in bed every day. Is that too much to ask? Those are the words of Erica Meshberger, Mesh Mesher, I'm sorry, from Minnesota. Erica sent me an email. I'm hearing from people all over North America. She's 44 years of age. She's the mother of two. And she's had chronic pancreatitis for eight years. She's bedridden in agony nausea and vomiting. Sometimes she has to use a wheelchair to just get around. And she was suddenly cut back by 50% from her opioids, which had her stable. Erica, thank you for taking the time, first of all, to write and then for coming on the air with us. What's happening to you, I hear again and again and again and again, time and again. And you write in your email and you run an advocacy group on Facebook. 100 million of 318 million Americans live with chronic pain every day.
6: Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Tell us about what your condition is.
6: Well, chronic pancreatitis, um, a, lot, a lot of people don't really know what the pancreas does. You know, when people think of the pancreas, they think of just insulin and diabetes and all that. And, you know, that's just half of what the pancreas does. It, it has endocrine functions and exocrine functions. Your endocrine functions are what control your your insulin, your glucose, and all of that stuff. And the endocrine, or the exocrine functions, I'm sorry, are for digestion. So when you eat, your stomach goes into, your food goes into your stomach, and then it's passed through the stomach, and the pancreas is triggered, and it starts releasing these digestive enzymes that help to break down the food and so you can, you know, get nutrients out of everything. Well, with chronic pancreatitis, I have a chronic inflammation of my pancreas, and that inflammation makes it hard for those enzymes to get out and go out and do what they do so they stay inside of my pancreas and actually start digesting my pancreas from the inside and it's extremely painful you know a lot of people have it's just you know i would describe it as being impaled not that i know what that actually feels like but i can't imagine that it's much worse
0: okay it's not unlikely that doctors know exactly what's happening to somebody who has chronic pancreatitis, as, as you do. They know, right. they know what your life is like. They know what you're going through. And yet, at the same time, they have arbitrarily and very quickly cut you back, what, by 50% on your opioids that you're re- receiving?
6: Yep. Um, on my long-acting, which is fentanyl, they cut me down by half, from 200 to 100 over a 30-day period. That is unheard of. That probably should have been done over maybe a year to be done safely. But it was done over 30 days for me. And then, obviously, I went into extreme withdrawal. And I called the doctor and I told him about it. And he basically told me that I just needed to suck it up.
0: Yeah, because no one but some what some, do- what some doctors say, Erica, is you're not suffering pain from your condition. You're suffering from withdrawal symptoms. So that's when they say suck it up.
6: Yeah. And it, it's all in my head, of course. You know, it's like, no, it's not in my head. It's in my pancreas. You know? Yeah and it's like if we get treated like drug addicts um, people you know a lot of doctors will you know just think that chronic pancreatitis comes from being an alcoholic that's not true there's basically three different groups of pancreatitis oh, you don't need you wise. don't need to, you
0: don't need to explain I hear it time and again that people who are on opioids and people who live with chronic pain are constantly looked down at, constantly being questioned, constantly being given a second look by a pharmacist or a doctor, and constantly being accused of being drug addicts.
6: Yeah, and then we get it from families and friends, too, who say, well, you don't look sick. Well, please tell me what sick looks like. That's like saying someone doesn't look like a serial killer. Please tell me what they look like. What's the difference? We all look the same because I don't have something sticking out of my body that you can see. Yeah doesn't mean that I'm not sick.
0: You have a Facebook advocacy group. What do you hear? What stories do you hear?
6: It's just countless stories of people being discharged by doctors, abandoned by doctors, cut off. You know, there, there's one guy in particular, and I believe that you had an interview with his wife a week or two ago, Tammy Hale?
0: Yes, yes, I did. His yeah, wife and his daughter. That
6: situation just left me in tears. Are you kidding me?
0: 53-year-old man committed exactly. suicide.
6: Father, husband, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. It's you and like in, in your don't mean anything.
0: In your email to me, you you indicated that on your Facebook group, you've had seven people commit suicide this year that's alone. That's
6: between the advocacy group, and we also have a chronic pancreatitis group. Okay, there's been seven people that we know of that have committed
0: suicide. All right, with all of this going on, and 100 million out of 318 million, and I've heard that number as well, I've heard actually 111 million yeah. Americans are living with chronic pain. In Canada, it's about 20% of our population, more than likely so. million and a half anyway, uh, or, or whatever the uh, the exact number is. Somebody's going to do the math and correct me. But uh, is anything going to change? Do you see any momentum at all in from government or from doctors or their regulatory bodies to make any changes, or are the chronic pain patients simply the sacrificial lambs now?
6: Yeah, we were we're kind of becoming the sac- sacrificial lambs, and like so, so many people are so jaded by all these doctors tearing them down and everybody treating them so, so crappy that they just give up. So there's a, this extreme disconnect mm-hmm. among the chronic pain community.
0: Yeah, well, I'm not. Gonna you know, get and I
6: think if we could unite. Yeah. we definitely have a little more power because, you know, throughout history, there's been power in numbers.
0: That's what you need to do. It's what, that's what I tell Canadians as well. Unite, put pressure on them, start a, 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 a lawsuit, class action lawsuit, or in this country, it could be a charter of rights lawsuit. Right. But, but, Erica, thank you. I'm going to stay on it, and I'm going to stay, keep on uh, supporting people like you and, and other chronic pain patients across North America. All the best to you, and I'll stay in touch with you
6: call your news stations do whatever you yeah. have to do because it may not be the quick fix yeah. but we have to get attention okay, we dear. have to get someone to start paying attention yeah. because there is You're always right. I got to run I
0: got to run Erica but we'll stay in touch okay
6: Thank you very much I appreciate it Take
0: care Erica Meshberger in Minnesota
1: You're listening to the Roy Green show weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML
0: We uh, have talked a lot recently about Robert Hall and John Redzell, the two Canadians who were abducted by Abu Sayyaf, the Philippine terror organization that is associated with ISIS, and we've spoken with uh, Benice Thomas, sister of Robert Hall, and Gord Bibby, who is Robert Hall's cousin. We've talked about how the Canadian government did nothing—literally did nothing—to assist, that we're aware of, and we would be aware. That we're aware of uh, to assist Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridsdale. Nothing, and Bernice Thomas has not received a reply to many communications she sent to the Global Affairs Minister, Christian Freeland, with questions about what happened to her brother, and uh, where the Canadian government's level of involvement was, and why there's no inquiry into the murders of these two Canadians. Well. Over the last few days, I found out about an Australian man who was abducted by Abu Sayyaf and who was released after 472 days of captivity. I found out by the man who wrote his biography. Warren Rodwell was kidnapped and held captive by ISIS-associated Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. And uh, he's Australian, and the Australian government got involved. And over the 472 days, was able to arrange, or at least participate in, what turned out to be about a $100,000 ransom. After which, and listen to this, after which Abu Sayyaf, the terror group, released Mr. Rodwell, claiming they had been paid room and board. In other words, I guess he was a guest of theirs, although they threatened him with beheading. Dr. Bob East is the researcher from Australia, the author of 472 Days, Captive of the Abu Sayyaf, the Survival of Australian Warren Rodwell. So let's say hello to Warren Rodwell from Australia and Dr. Bob East. Warren, it's good to speak
5: with you. Uh, Likewise, Roy.
0: And uh, Bob, good to speak with you. You're the one who contacted me about a week week and a half ago, and your initial email to me was, you're absolutely correct in what you're saying about Mr. Trudeau's lack of involvement.
7: Yes, Roy, that's correct. Um, I suppose that's what started uh, all this off. And then I got in touch with uh, Warren, and uh, I sent that article through to him too, Yes, I didn't want to appear to be too critical of your prime minister. However, um, I, I think he probably could have done more. Uh, our prime minister became involved, and um, you know, I mean, I saw some of the um, some of the comments from your prime minister. And as I say, I don't want to be critical, but I just believe uh, he could have done a little more.
0: The word is, he could have done a lot more. That's the understanding that we have. We also, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through the hour, but the understanding that we have is that there were military forces ready to try to rescue both Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridgedale, and they were comprised of members of Canada's special forces, elite special forces, Joint Task Force 2, the Filipino special forces, and perhaps American special forces as well. Benice Thomas is the sister of Robert Hall. And, Benice, when you said to me, I think it was about two, three weeks ago, you said, that you had tried many times, maybe hundreds of times, to contact the federal government, and particularly the global affairs minister, and received nothing in the, way of, in the way of a reply, and that there's no interest, doesn't seem to be any interest in an inquiry, that really tr- is extremely, extremely troubling. I, I take it you haven't heard from anybody in the government in the ensuing two or three weeks.
8: Still nothing, Roy, and, um, you know, this goes right back to... You know, just weeks after uh, Robert and, and John were kidnapped, starting to write letters to everyone from the PM to MPs to then Foreign Affairs Minister Stefan Dion, Ralph Goodall, uh, Harjit Sajjan, just the, our Governor-General. Um, still nothing from the major players, which would be our, well, Justin Trudeau. And um, nothing, I, I believe, gored a year or better after um, he started writing to Stefan Dion. He finally got a letter from Dion, very, very, you know, untimely. But the, my most recent letter to Christian Freeland was written on uh, June 13th, I think, and not a peep back. So clearly, they're not interested in communicating with you.
0: And don't hold your breath if you're waiting for an inquiry as to what happened to your brother right. and Mr. Ridsdell. Right. Gord, this—I know this is terribly frustrating for you—and you've invited Prime Minister Trudeau to speak with you about this publicly on this program or anywhere else that he might choose to.
9: Well, that's right, Roy, and uh, and the invitation still stands. <laughs> I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if he takes me up on it. But you know, you are talking about frustration. I was most frustrated when uh, our esteemed Prime Minister was in the Philippines <clears throat> while uh, while Bob and John were being held hostage. And I think he was uh, he was doing the photo ops and shaking the hands with the people and acting the wrong star. I think somebody asked him what was happening, and he basically just said, "Well, I wish them well uh, he you know you would have thought if he was over there that he would have tried tried to take some some involvement with uh, with this case
0: doesn 't seem to be even in the slightest interested warren uh, Rodwell in australia you're critical of the prime minister's lack of involvement in attempting to secure the freedom uh, and the release of Robert Hall and John Ridsdale, as well as Mr. Trudeau's repeated statements that Canada doesn't pay ransom to release Canadians from abduction. They wouldn't even negotiate, never mind uh, pay ransom. What? Uh, how much of a misfire do you think this was by Mr. Trudeau based on what your government was able to accomplish?
5: I firstly think it was very naive when I, when I heard the state. Uh, there was a lot of chest beating. These people that do the kidnappings, they, they do have access to the internet themselves. And uh, to simply state that Canada doesn't negotiate, well, uh, that doesn't protect anyone. Because when, uh, when anyone is kidnapped, their nationality is not known immediately. All they are is a target anyway. People we're, of all colors and creeds, uh, you know, get kidnapped.
0: Now, yeah, Warren, we're uh, having a little we're having a little trouble with your with your uh, with the reception on your phone. So just don't do anything. We'll we'll just stay with you and. Uh, Maybe if, okay. if you've moved a few feet from where you were earlier, maybe you can go back to where you were. I'm not sure. Bob East, the military op- the talk about military operations, or the military option to free Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridsdale, that it was on the table, and that a military mission involving Canada's special forces, Filipino special forces, and perhaps UN spe- U.S. special forces, was ready to go. What do you know about that?
7: I, I know very little about it. Um, Warren was telling me uh, that they were... When um, uh, Robert and John were, were kidnapped, I had a, a, um, you know, I, I had an interest in that because um, I, I go to the Philippines a lot. It's, I have a PhD that I wrote on insurgency there, and um, just incidentally, I'm also married to a Filipina. So I, I know a lot about the country, and I know a lot about the Abu Sayyaf. So um, he told me that there were... Your special forces uh, were there. I just wonder why... Uh, they didn't get involved. Now, if if it had been uh, Americans that were kidnapped or something like that, the, the Americans would have their their people in there straight away. So maybe the prime minister was just um, he's he's fairly new at the game, I suppose, or so maybe he was just trying to be cautious. I, I'm not I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But yes, I I wasn't aware that your people were there until
0: that's what we've been told on several occasions. What can you tell us? What should we know about Abu Sayyaf, Bob?
7: Well, where do I begin? Um, I, I've been researching this group for um, well over a decade, and I've written three books about them. In fact, I'm to my fourth book about uh, what they're doing now in the way of piracy. When they originally started 20 years ago or a little bit more under um, Abdurajak Janjalani, it was a group that probably was uh, intent on separatism and that. But at the moment, the Abu Sayyaf has split into so many different groups and they have so many different leaders, and it's just they are just criminals. They are just uneducated criminals who are just doing this for money. They have no. Uh, They have no humanity about them whatsoever, as you can see by what they did to Mm -hmm. Bobby and John. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, probably if anybody really wants to know about this group, um, and I don't want to put too much of a plug on this, but just grab hold of um, certainly the first book that I wrote, which was called Terror Truncated. That's when the Abu Sayyaf uh, took a bit of a nosedive back in 2002, um, and then my other book that was released just a little while ago about the, the new Abu Sayyaf, and you get some idea of uh, where these okay. people are coming from. But look, they're, they're fractured, and as I said, at the risk of repeating myself, they are just, they're just criminal gangs.
0: Yeah. Uh, Warren, reading what you have written and, and what uh, what you sent me, Abu Sayyaf, the ones that had you captive, the, the people are actually on the ground with you, they were basically poor, illiterate, um, just interested in making money. But above them was a level of control that was, that was really in charge of what was going on. What was your relationship like with the people on the ground? And, and I, I should ask you as well, were you captive at the same time as Mr. Ridsdale and, and Mr. Hall, or, or was there no intersection of those paths?
5: I was captured beforehand from the 5th of December 2011 and the 23rd of March 2013.
0: So that... Okay. So, the, so
5: you, 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 you never it crossed it paths. Was, yeah, it, it was beforehand.
9: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: so it wasn't at the same time, but there were others, quite a number of them were kidnapped uh, at the same time in different locations.
0: How did they treat you?
5: Uh, Under the circumstances, they treated me the best that they could because I was valuable. The the greatest difficulty and probably uh, danger to me, apart from the threat of being beheaded, was the lack of food. Because we we had to go into hiding in the very remote location, including war zones. So in, in that case, we, we couldn't get food. My usual diet was diet only, and this also applied to the guards that were around me. So these guards were usually about 19, 20 years old, and you could consider something similar to, say, seasonal work for them. Most of them probably never got paid anyhow. And some of them got killed, of course. So they, uh, the people that were really the organisers uh, are said to be a corrupt syndicate uh, on the top of things.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
0: Ward, do you have a question you'd like to ask either Bob East or Warren Rodwell about what's been said so far?
9: Well, I would, Roy. Thank you. Uh, uh, Dr. East, I I noticed on your your, uh, Wikipedia site uh, from 2000 until 2016, there were about uh, 98 incidents involving the Abu Sayyaf. At the end of 2015, there was apparently uh, an official affiliation made with ISIL, and the following year, 2016, there were 20 incidents. Uh, so, from 20, uh, 2000 to 2015, there was an average of five incidents per year, and in 2016, there were 20 incidents. Is that is that significant? Is there some uh, acceleration on uh, on their activity because they're now officially associated with uh, with ISIL?
7: Well, it would appear that. Um, the escalation has had something to do with the affiliation of ISIS. I mean, um, as you probably know, there is a state of emergency in Mindanao at the moment, and that's because of the um, the involvement of Abu Sayyaf and ISIS down in uh, Marawi, which is um, in in the autonomous region of Mindanao. So yes, they appear to be, certain groups appear to be uh, getting uh, organized now, but there's still the the, uh, the the groups that are not organized, the ones that are uh, doing the piracy in the Sulu Sea and all that sort of stuff. So it's still very fractured, but you still have Habilon, um, who is in charge of uh, the Abu Sayyaf down there, and he appears to be uh, organizing that group down there more so than the ones in the Sulu Archipelago. If I
0: making sense, Bob, uh, was I Abu Sayyaf in the habit of murdering their hostages, or did most of the hostages find a way to be released either through uh, ransom being paid or some other manner? What uh, were they? I mean, did, what percentage of their of their victims were were executed? Well, not
7: not a lot. I mean, if we go back to the original incident um, and Uh, This is right in the beginning of the the 21st century. Most of the people that they kidnapped, you know, were released. Yes, there was the occasional one that was killed, but not like today. I mean, the Abu Sayyaf today, especially the groups that are in in Sulu, and that's where I understand um, Bobby and John were, um, as opposed to Warren, he was all over the place. But they they appear to be just bloodthirsty uh, for whatever reason. But yes, it, it has escalated. And uh, that's the reason why the uh, president, you know, has declared a state of emergency.
0: Warren, uh, you were afraid for your life um, most of the time, all of the time that you were in there,
5: uh, that you were there captive.
2: Yes, but
5: after three months, because it was a constant anguish, I really just had to shut down my thoughts in that regard. Otherwise, it was doing my head in. Uh, and that was would have affected my...
0: Uh, now, that was the question uh, I was going to ask you. What impact does that have? Just being surrounded by people and constantly being under threat over a period of time. Uh, that has to be just it's so psychologically d- destroying.
5: It's, it's no relief at, at all. And, and you can't switch off and escape you know, at all from it. And whenever a large number of people would all of a sudden accumulate in the in the in the camp prison camps, if you start stressing too much well uh you know you can feel sick as well so there's nothing you can do about it
1: yeah you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml
5: what was it
0: that australia did warren what was it that your government did when you were captive uh, taken captive by abu Sayyaf to start the ball rolling uh, and, and providing the funds that they eventually accepted and allowed you to go.
5: Firstly, Roy, the Australian government did not pay any money. They did not contribute And uh in the monetary terms. The the monies that were raised were from my brother, sister and I. But the, the Australian original rent <clears throat> demand was for two million US dollars.
0: Okay. The Australian government uh, did did help but did assist, did they not?
5: Yes. They, immediately upon uh, being advised, uh, that was within a few hours, they formed a multi-agency task force, which consisted of the Australian Federal Police, the Australian Embassy, the Australian Military and the Australian Security uh, secret Intelligence uh, Organisation. Okay.
0: We apologise for the sound quality with mobile phones. I just... I just tweeted, 50 years ago, we put a man on the moon, but we still have uncertain mobile phone quality in 2017. Okay. We haven't come all that far. <laughs> Bernice Thomas, Bernice, when you when you hear uh, Mr. Rodwell talk about the Australian government putting together a multi-agency task force to start working on getting Mr. Rodwell out, that's essentially what you've asked the Canadian government to do.
8: That's right, uh, Roy, and in in my conversation the other day with warren first of all i just want to say uh warren i'm i'm so sorry for for your I'm i'm so happy that that you walked out of the jungle and and just from all warren's told me um you know it's very it's difficult to revisit you know what my brother must have been going through and just the mental anguish especially from the time uh that john was murdered up until my brother was murdered but, you know, from, from all that Warren has told me and from, from Dr. East, you know, Australia created the template that Canada needs to follow. And and I don't understand why still, um, you know, in, in talking with Warren, I asked him directly, did Canada?
0: Are you there, Bernice? I think we lost Bernice. Let's get her back, Gord. Uh, do you know what uh, Bernice was getting at? Do you want to finish off what she was uh, maybe saying?
9: Uh, I, I was having trouble hearing her. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, Roy. Okay. I, I, I think the big distinction between the two cases is the Australian government was treating uh, Warren's uh, abduction as a terrorism act, and our government was just treating it as a as a kidnapping of uh, two. Uh, to unfortunate <coughs> souls overseas, and I, I think that's the big distinction.
0: Are there new questions that have occurred to you since you've been listening to, to Warren and to uh, to Bob in Australia, and uh, communication that you might have had with them by way of email over the last several days?
9: Uh, I well, I've, I've certainly uh, enlightened me as to uh, to what should be done uh, that the Canadian government did. I, I, I uh, have been. Uh, Looking at a lot of the information, uh, the uh, particularly the the Australians' policy on hostages, and it's it's fairly exhaustive, and and I think uh, I think the government should uh, our government should take a close look at that. And it's it's amazing to me that uh, there was all this information which is readily available. You know, I mean, Bonnie Bonnie and I have, have sourced it on the internet, and our it appears our government uh, had no idea. Uh, that there were these options available, learning from the experience of other countries. It's just that that that's very, very disturbing to me.
0: And we're not just talking about the past or the present. We're also talking about what can happen and what may very well happen going forward. Benice, uh, back with us. We lost you there for a second. Uh, you were in the middle of a question or a point you were making, Benice. Uh,
8: I don't know where you lost me. So um, basically, all I, all I need to say is that this is a clear case in my mind of not a lack of means or lack of, of ability it is a lack of political will on the part of Justin Trudeau because we look at you know the success that Australia had with creating a template for hostage policy in these cases they're they're you know on top of the game and the most recent and documented uh information, as well as what Dr. East has accumulated in his research. And, and there are multiple incidences of successful rescues. So why Canada didn't even attempt to rescue is, is crazy making. And it is it boils down to a lack of political will. From our government. That's all there is to it.
0: Bob, have there been successful military rescues of hostages of Abu Sayyaf? We know it's happened with other terror organizations. What about them? Bob East?
7: Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Have I'm there
0: have there been it. have there been successful military rescues, Bob, of hostages held by Abu Sayyaf?
7: Oh yes, yes. There has um, certainly. Uh, if, if we go back into history a little bit, you know, when the Americans were there in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, they were quite successful, and also um, the Philippine armed forces were quite successful too. I don't know why, just in the last couple of years, that they haven't had the same success. Um, but, but yes, to answer your question, um, there, there have been well, uh, I, that, 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 that raises the question. Or,
0: that raises the question: what's changed about? this group that makes them more in, 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 impervious to uh, to a military rescue maybe there was a reason for Canada not to get involved militarily
7: well I, I don't know why your government uh, didn't get involved uh, military they as you said they did have people there but um, okay. I, I don't know I think one of the problems is is that the average say of, of today, is not the Abu Sayyaf of what it was 10 years ago. It was very, very organized, and as I said, now it's just totally splintered. And mm-hmm. any group that wants to get a dozen people together, they just call themselves Abu Sayyaf, you see? So there, there really is, the, the, the structure is not there like it was 10 years ago. Uh,
0: Warren, what were you doing at the time that you were abducted? Uh, Mr. Ridsdale and Mr. Hall were in a marina, and uh, one of them got up and turned on a light and the, there was a commotion as Abu uh, Saif was was abducting I, I don't know who they took first, but then the other Canadian heard the commotion turned on the light and he was taken as well. What were you doing at the time that they got you?
5: I, I was in the final process of uh, stages of building a house and at around six o'clock at night the Light was changing; to get dark, and four men broke in, disguised as police and with weapons. Uh, one shot me through the hand, and they captured me that way.
0: What did they say to you at the time? Was there anything? Uh, was anything said? And while you were there captive, was there a, Did they? Did they? Did they explain to you why they were doing what they were doing, or not?
5: Initially, they did not explain. Uh, when they broke in, and I had someone an arm's distance away, a couple of arm distances away, pointing a rifle at me, an assault weapon. Uh, I, I looked at him, then he just shot me uh, through the through the hand, which was beside me. Uh, I abused him when he did it, uh, and he just said, "Police, police." I, I looked at one of the weapons, and it had a sticker on it saying, "Police." So the next thing, the the fellow in charge produced a set of handcuffs and put them on me and dragged me off.
0: So I get the picture of a disorganized uh, crew on the ground, as as Bob said, maybe a few dozen people calling themselves Abu Sayyaf. Was there there an element of that, that they were just sort of making things up as they were going along?
5: Well, in this group that captured me, I saw four of them. The person that was the leader... He appeared to have military or police training. The rest were just young guys uh, along for the ride. I was dragged down to a river and into a boat, and it wasn't until I saw the boat that I realised that I was being kidnapped.
0: So, are you that's, saying that's that are you saying that you're saying Filipino police may be involved with them?
5: Not at that point of time. No, they were just claiming to be.
0: Okay. All
5: right. there well, is a distinction, Roy. That in the local community level, they it's called a barangay. They have their own police, if you like, officials. Okay. Uh, elected ones. All
0: right. Uh, before we take the, bre- the break, Benice uh, Gord, any questions? Any points you want to make?
8: Um, Gordy, go ahead.
9: Oh, <laughs> um, I, I'm. I, I just. Uh, uh, it seems to me like if this group was as disorganized and leaderless as Warren says, that uh, that uh, you know a properly mounted military ex- yeah. rescue
1: exercise probably wouldn't have been successful.
0: Yeah, it certainly does, doesn't it? I have this very same thought.
1: You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.
0: But he's what are the? What's the most fundamental question that you want answered? Well, it
8: would. Fundamentally, be I guess why was there no rescue attempt when we have the means and ability, and one of the best counterterrorism special forces units on the planet?
0: And I I imagine you've posed that question in written form to the global affairs minister and the prime minister
8: many, many times. Yes,
0: Gordy you've uh, as we pointed out, you've challenged the prime minister to a debate publicly on this program or elsewhere. What's the question, most fundamental question you want answered? What does Justin Trudeau have to answer?
9: Well, obviously why, why he didn't do more. I, I, I would ask uh, your guests from Australia if the Canadian government uh, uh, at any time contacted them uh, regarding their experiences with regards to uh, Bob and John's uh, situation. Just, just to gain some insight.
0: That's an interesting question, uh, Warren. Any any contacts? Anybody ask you about your experiences with Abu Sayyaf?
5: Absolutely no. Would you able
0: would you've been able to provide some information to that what might have been valuable to a military force?
5: Oh well look, we there's plenty of media stuff. We have Wikipedia entries, the books being published, everything's available freely. Mm-hmm. The Australian government in the Philippines, uh, they've got a resource information. The Australian Federal Police has confirmed with me that they're not aware of ever being contacted uh, outside. So by the time the Canadian media did ask me after John Ridsdale murder, my first question was, what took you so long? You had to ask me, because we're... We're easy to find. you don't have to uh, enter the name Abbasiva in Google, and our names would pop up, and how
9: to contact us.
0: That's a very uh, good question. What took you so long?
9: You know, I, 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 Roy, I think I think that's that's the problem. The family of God is is you know, <laughs> as, as you know, basic citizens. We've been able to uh, do a fair amount of research into uh, the history and and certainly the information these two gentlemen have provided has been. Uh, has been excellent Uh, I can't for the life of me figure out why our government uh, if they were serious about uh, getting Bob and John out of this situation why you know they didn't do some simple research it it, it just blows me away and and I think that goes to the uh, to the petition petition 696 is it so there will be something formulated much like the Australian government has done with regards to uh, strategies relating to uh, uh, hostage hostage takings,
0: and and you told me that there is a time limit that the Canadian government has to respond to that petition.
9: Yeah, I, I, I think I think they're going to be resp- are supposed to be responding officially next week. Uh, okay. Bonnie may be able to confirm that, but I, I think that's the situation. So we're certainly. Very anxious to see what their response. Yeah, one
0: of the things we have to remember is we're talking about Benissa's brother and your cousin. We're talking about two people. If you look at the photographs of them as their captives of Abu Sayyaf, that, that one photograph particularly that is available to anyone that is just such a terrifying photograph. And you remind yourself it could be anybody. It could have been anyone at any time. It just happened to be the two gentlemen who were involved. We have to remind ourselves. Who we're talking about Warren. Uh, oh, Bob, what's the uh, give me in about 20 seconds, what's the Australian government's response or or or, or um position on inter- intervening in hostage or kidnapping cases?
7: Well, I'm not quite sure what their official um policy is on that. All I know is that when Warren was kidnapped, they had a media blackout. I argued against this because I said, if you don't keep his name in the paper, he's not of any value to them. Now, I wasn't even aware of what the government was doing because, as I said, there was a media blackout. Right. It wasn't until after I met Warren when he came back yeah. um, that I realized how much my government had done. Right. They had
0: done a lot. All right, uh, Warren Rodwell, glad you're safe and home, and uh, and thank you for joining us from Australia. Dr. Bob East, thank you as well, and Bernice and Gord we're just we're concerned about you we're concerned about what happened there are, are questions that you have that other Canadians also have that have to be answered best to you both and we'll stay in touch thanks, thanks right.
1: Roy. the Roy Green Show weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML